Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and on this episode of Jill on Money, we're talking about why the future of finance should be female. Remember, our brains are hardwired not to be good investors. Investing for the long term is very hard. It requires patience and discipline and a long-term view, which we're seeing women have more of that than men do. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. Did you ever wonder who's better at managing money, women or men? Our guest, Blair Ducanet, says that years of research show that female investors outperform men. But unfortunately, only about one in five financial pros are women. We're going deep with Blair, and she's going to explain what is it about women that makes them better than men at investing. Here's our interview with Blair Ducanet. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Well, we are delighted to have a real live fiduciary investment advisor, Blair Ducanet, which is a great name because I like, just want to say it again. Ducanet. Is that right? That's correct. Thank God. Blair, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm wonderful, Jill. Thanks for having me. So we start every show with the same question. Best career or financial decision you've ever made? Well, this answers both of those, becoming a financial advisor. Nice. Fantastic. Um, What made you decide to do that? It was really happenstance. I was an undergrad as a dance major. What? Yes. I was a ballet dancer, classically trained. Let me see your feet right now. Well, they're in in boots. So Where I think ballet dancers' feet belong. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And sophomore year of college, decided that I should probably pursue a second degree. So I went into the business school was in the first accounting class and learned about time value of money and became enthralled and decided I was going to major in finance. And my first internship was at a Smith Barney office in Athens, Georgia, where I was in school. And that was what was on my resume. And so my first job was in wealth management, and I've been there ever since. Wow. Are you designated with some letters? Are you CFP or CPA or anything like that? I am a chartered financial analyst. So you got a serious certification there, girl. CFA charter, and I'm also a CFP. But CFP was much of it, must have been a complete breeze for you. CFP is a broader topic mm. than the CFA. CFA is deeper, very difficult, three years of testing. CFP, also difficult, different type of test altogether. Right. I actually thought the CFP exam, which Mark will be sitting for, when are you sitting for the exam? So March. So his his exam is coming up. He's doing it in between passing his kidney stone and having a baby. So he's like kind of wedged it in. Whoa. Pretty good, right? Yes. I always felt that the CFP exam was a good one. Of, of all the standardized tests that I've taken in my life, I felt like it was one that brought together the information in a really good way, right? It really does. And the education requirement to sit for that exam is very comprehensive. You're talking about tax, investments, estate planning, all of these topics. That's why I said it's very broad. It was a lot of information to cram in when I was studying back in March of 2009. It's your 10-year anniversary. Yes. That's great. So you started in this model of a brokerage house, a wire house, as we call it. And what was it about that experience that that you said, "Mm, this is not quite for me? What was it about that experience that you didn't like? Yeah, I did start on the brokerage side, which 15 years ago, that was really the only place to start with no experience. One of the good things about my experience there was I was not an advisor. I was not what they call a producer, somebody who had to go out and bring in clients in order to earn my pay. 
I was on a team. I was a salaried employee. So I learned the business. I learned the operations of the business. I learned client service. But after a few years, you start to realize there's a relationship with the client where you don't feel like you're on their side. Mm. There are pressures. There Mm -hmm. are, you know, the office that you're in has um, goals that they're trying to set. They want to have so many clients using the banking products. They want to have so many clients using structured products, whatever it might be. And they have goals and they're going to go around and ask you to help them meet those goals. So there's pressures there. What did you find when you left that world? What was what was opened up to you? I had no idea that there was a way of being a financial advisor that didn't require being in a broker broker dealer. Oh. So by happenstance, I knew someone who on the mutual fund wholesaling side covered the independent channel and the broker dealer channel who introduced me to the first RA firm that hired me. And which was that? Wealthstream Advisors. Wealthstream Advisors. Ladies and gentlemen, you may have heard that because Michael Goodman, who was on our program at the end of uh, last year, we did a year-end tax planning with Michael. So you are a Michael Goodman acolyte, but you no longer are with Wealthstream because you had to move to New Orleans because you wanted a better city with great food, and there was a spouse involved. Correct. I would probably still be at Wealthstream if I hadn't met my husband and moved to New Orleans. (laughs) So um, one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on is that you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Did you have any idea how crazy this was going to go? I knew it was a big deal. They approached me. They had seen a blog that I wrote about the lack of women in, in this field, and asked me if I wanted to write it. And it took a couple of months between me mulling over it and the edits. So I was excited about it, but not until it was published did I realize how big of a deal it was. Did you write the headline or did they? They did. Okay. So the headline is Consider Firing Your Male Broker. And the subtitle is Years of Research Show Female Investors Outperform Men, But Only About One in Five Brokers Are Women. Funny thing is that like when I looked at the word broker, like the hair in the back of my neck went up a little bit. That's their word, not your word, right? Yes. So you're not a fan of the brokerage model anyway. So let's start it with that premise. You like the model of a fiduciary advisor who's putting your best interest first at all times. We put that on the table. What was the big takeaway after the publication when you got the feedback? What, were, what was the sort of the positive and the negative that you received? Most of the feedback that I received was incredibly overwhelmingly positive. All of the men that I've worked with in my career agree. They know that there's not enough women. They've been trying to find more women. I think it's a it's a problem that has to come from both sides. We need more women to be interested, and then we need the firms to hire more women. So from that perspective, everybody in the industry agreed. A lot of people did take umbrage with the salacious title. Um, we did talk about, with the New York Times, the, the term broker and advisor, an advisor with an O versus an E. Yeah. And I think that's a topic for another op-ed that I would love to write. I decided that I had no problem with the word broker because, you know what, the investing public does not know the difference. Right. They use these words interchangeably. And to be honest, my title would have been, why aren't there enough women as financial advisors? And I doubt that would have gotten as many eyeballs reading it. Yeah. And also the idea that the whole financial services industry is really chasing after women and we are not attracting them. Why are women more willing to go into investment banking than in the advice giving business? I use this analogy with other professions, whether it's accounting or law or medicine. 
there's a clearer path. And maybe in investment banking, there's also a clearer path. You do your two to three years, and then you make associate. In wealth management, you really have to work for a senior advisor, and you have to just hope that they're going to help you progress in your career. There's no clear delineation that you would get when you go to medical school. You're a doctor. Everybody's going to respect you. You have the white coat. When you go into accounting firms, they have the same clear progression to partnership in those firms. So I think it's just the lack of clarity that women don't see, how am I going to make it here? Mm. Um, That's one of many reasons, but I think it's a big one. I've also heard when I was doing some work with the CFP board and I would talk to young women, they would say, I don't want to go into these high pressure sales organizations. So so they were really, you started by saying that you were in a wirehouse, but you were part of a salaried team that learned the business. That's a lot different than like, hey, Blair, here's the, here's the white pages, go, and you eat what you kill. So part of the problem is some of the, the model doesn't really appeal to a ton of different people. Like when I say that my nephew comes out of Penn, none of his colleagues and cohorts wanted to go into this the retail business they sort of thought like ugh, that slimy sales business i don't want to do that how can we rectify that i think you really hit on a good point because most of the advisors in the broker firms who are going into this you know program of call all all of your friends and then call everyone in the phone book less than one in ten make it it's Mm. not easy it's it's extremely difficult and I, i absolutely agree i never wanted to be in sales um i love building relationships And um, the sales part is a slog. I think what we're seeing now on the independent side with the fiduciary RIAs is that these businesses are finally moving past the single founder and a few staff. They're becoming real firms. They're growing. And so now they can offer these young professionals that salaried position that they were looking for, you know, 15 years ago. Right. Interesting. Besides the salacious headline, which I loved, you say that maybe the problems that occurred in the financial crisis may have some root in how many women were in the financial services business. Can you explain that? Certainly. If you look at the top of not only banks, but all corporations, there's very few women. I mean, less than 5% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are women. Women, when they make it to the top, they tend to be uh, HR, general counsel. They're not in the operational business line model. Christine Lagarde, head of the World Bank and the IMF, had quote, had was quoted saying, maybe if there had been a few more women in leadership, we wouldn't have had this problem. And it comes down to gender diversity of teams that are making complex decisions. Gender diversity is the laziest form for cognitive diversity. What were all these banks doing? They had a complete blind spot. They had no idea that all of these mortgages they had levered up and put on their balance sheets could become worthless. And maybe if there was some more cognitive diversity among those teams, gender diversity being the easiest way to get that, we wouldn't have had such a problem. It's so funny that you say that because there are so many times where people will say, you know, you want to build a diverse team because I want to make the business model for doing that. And what you're saying, cognitive diversity is really true because when you get not just all white dudes making if who come from the exact same schools perpetuating their same stuff you get someone who raises a hand and says, wait why but why are we doing this right not to say as you mentioned that there isn't uh there clearly could be women who were part of it there were women who were part of these teams that were involved there were many female heads rolled did you notice that i remember that right yeah hmm interesting 
what is it about women that you think just the way that I mean, again, this is broad brush, but like the the focus is more goal oriented than transaction oriented. Is that how it, it kind of breaks down here? We're certainly seeing that with women as clients. Women as clients focus much more on the long-term perspective, their financial goals, than they do, how did we do against the S&P 500 last year, which seems to be you know, a very common question from men as clients. So this characteristic is beneficial for the long-term investor. Remember, our brains are hardwired not to be good investors. Investing for the long-term is very hard. Um, it requires patience and discipline and a long-term view, which we're seeing women have more of that than men do mm-hmm. on average. And they don't trade as much, so that helps improve their performance because there's all that. You, you cite that study, which I love, that boys will be boys study. There's also the same one, which was, um, there was one about like testosterone and investing, which is like went and looked at a trading desk with a bunch of guys. But essentially that women tend to be better long-term investors because they don't trade as much and they are more goal-oriented. So when you got some more feedback from folks in the industry, specifically, there's one guy who kind of came after you and he's like sort of a, a legend of the the planning industry. This guy, Michael Kitsis. What was his complaint? So he didn't come after me, but we were having a healthy debate on Twitter. I love that. Mark says he came after you. I'm, I'm defending you already. Back down, Kitsis. OK, tell me what happened. So he he took umbrage with the use of research to show that women are better investors because they had higher performance, whether it was with the Boys Will Be Boys paper with the trading less or the Warwick study where women were found to have better investment returns. Uh, he thought that because of the also the subtitle, that that was the crux of the argument. Uh, I saw the research as just additional ammunition to attack this you know, problem that we all agree on is that there's not enough women entering the financial advice field and also the asset management field where less than one in 10 mutual funds are run by a woman. It's even worse when you look institutionally. Women are running less than 2% of assets. So, Which is probably fine because they realize that managed funds are complete bunk and maybe they don't sign up for that. But but again, we should have more women even in that flawed business. Yes. And where we're seeing more women is in passive strategies and on teams when they're running mutual funds. They tend to be more involved there. So what's his beef, though? He says, don't you shouldn't have that be relevant here. I'm, I don't get the beef there. That you can't extrapolate research done on individual investors to push that over and to say that means that women as financial advisors would be better investors. Oh, I see. OK, well, all right, fine. I made the leap. He wasn't making the leap. We eventually came to an agreement. And he pointed out, rightfully so, that a lot of the younger fiduciary advisors, especially the ones in his firm, the XY Planning Network, were seeing a much more balance of women there, more of a 50-50 in that space, which is really exciting. It is exciting. So I, I wonder if you think there are some there's some role to be played by how to how to make fiduciary the standard, right? Because we just, in fact, I just answered a question that came in, uh, someone who said, how do I know if someone is a fiduciary? Is this a license? Why is it that the big fund families as well as the big wirehouses are so congenitally incapable of adopting a standard that puts their clients first? Well, if you go back to the original legislation in 1940 with the Investment Advisors Act, the broker-dealer firms were written an exception to the fiduciary rule because their primary business is the transaction of securities, buying and selling from their own account to their clients. 
they have an exception to the fiduciary rule that they are not giving advice except subsequent to an individual transaction. That's their entire business model. So you're talking about ripping apart the core of the business model there. And what's really fascinating is that when the Department of Labor tried to enforce a fiduciary standard only in retirement accounts, because that's where only purview they had, a couple of years ago, the brokerage firms were taking out ads in the Wall Street Journal saying, we have your best interests at heart. And yet at the same time, their attorneys were fighting the DOL rule saying, we can't be fiduciaries because of our exception. So it's very confusing. We never really adopted, as other professions like law and medicine did, a fiduciary standard and a true profession. And that's really because those professions happened over a century ago. And this is the first generation of Americans who had to save for their own retirement. Mm. We had to find benefit plans, pension plans at work. People worked until the final years of their life. We're just now getting to the point where the average American has had to save for and plan for a 30-year retirement on their own. We're just really getting to the point where most Americans need a fiduciary in this space. Do you think that when the SEC comes out, I think this year at some point, now it's happening-ish, um, do you anticipate them creating a, a half step towards adopting a fiduciary standard? I know it's not going to happen under this administration, but do you see that as the next logical step? Probably what's going to happen, but do I think that's a good idea? No. A half step will be a watered down fiduciary standard, unfortunately. I don't know what the solution is. It's not very American for uh, the government to tell corporations what they should do. So it's a big problem. I think that the better route would be to use the, the laws that are already on the book with the 1940 Investment Advisors Act and to be clearer about what we call advisor or broker. Because when brokers start calling themselves financial advisor with an O, because they legally cannot call themselves advisor with an E, as the law is written, it muddied the water. It's too confusing. And I think really what we need is clarity. You know, it's funny because I... Uh actually moderated a, a focus group on behalf of the CFP board and the Consumer Federation and AARP. And we got a group of investors around a table. We videotaped it. People had no freaking idea what role the person who was providing financial advice had. They didn't know whether it was a broker, an advisor, advisor. Of course, you, you they would imagine that someone put their best interest first. They didn't know that there was no requirement not to put their best interest first. I just think that if you really want to be considered a profession and you're unwilling to put your client first, like, would you go to a doctor and say, hey, I'd love to go come to you for medical advice, but do what's right for you before me. Would we ever do that? Of course not. It's insanity, right? Tell me what you think about, like, CFP board going to a stricter standard this year in 2019. How do you see that playing out? Kitsis has actually been a, a critic of CFP board. How do you see that? CFP board is trying to do the right thing. The problem that they're having is that the CFP was originally a designation for insurance agents to sell more insurance by doing financial plans. And a lot of their members are in insurance companies and broker dealers. And it's very hard for them to apply the fiduciary standard to certificate holders who don't work in that business model. So they're trying to say, when you're doing the act of financial planning as a CFP, you're going to be held to a fiduciary standard and you're going to have to have a separate contract. That's the other thing. What we have now with the broker-dealer and hybrid RIA model, which is how a lot of independent firms operate, is that the advisor can 
on the same client at one point be operating as a fiduciary and then turn over in the other account and do a sales transaction and never have to tell the client that that's been changed. So I think the CFP board is trying to do the best they can, but it's very difficult for them considering who, who their certificate owners are. So if someone's listening here and they want to know, well, how do I know? I want to Blair. By the way, you can get Blair yourself. You don't have to live in New Orleans. What do you think is the best way for people to seek financial advice? So the first thing you have to find out is, does this person have an affiliation with a broker dealer or an insurance company or a bank? If they're in any of those models, even half of the time, they are licensed to sell you products. It doesn't mean that they're bad people, and a lot of them are very talented and might give good advice. They are in a business model that is subject to con- more conflicts because nobody's conflict-free. Right. We all have conflicts. But oh, so, Please ask my therapist about that. Do I have conflicts? Exactly. <laughs> so what you want to do is find an advisor with an E who works at an RIA, a registered investment advisory firm, that has no affiliation with a broker-dealer. So if you go on the BrokerCheck website, this person should not have active licenses like the Series 7 or an active insurance uh, license. Okay. So you're not going to necessarily find that because if you go to the CFP website, if you go to letsmakeaplan.org, you're not sure. But if you go to NAPFA, well, you would have someone who is always held to the fiduciary standard and sells no product. NAPFA is one organization. You know that all of their members are going to be fiduciaries, but a lot of us who are fiduciaries are not necessarily members of NAPFA. That's the weird thing, right? So, so like, that's the part of the confusion is because the models are so weird and gray areas exist in so many places, it's really hard for the consumer. So is the best question to ask simply, are you held to the fiduciary standard at all times? I would like to say yes, but when the DOL rule was still looking like it was going to come through, I heard that those who work at broker-dealers were saying yes, and (sighs) in some way could because maybe they have a corporate RIA attached to a broker-dealer. It's very confusing. I don't have the answer. We need to start an organization. We need to do something about this. I agree. Somewhere where we could all be searchable. Right. Right. That's what I mean. Like There was some database where you could say like, Fiduciary.org. This is where every fiduciary all over America. I got to talk to someone about this. You and I can make this happen. I'd be willing to help as much as I can. Let's do it. Before you go, uh, tell me what you think is the dumbest thing that you have ever done with your money or your career. That is our final question. And here you have my book staring right in your face. I signed it and everything. Even before the interview, I knew I'd like you. Yes, and thank you for signing it. Of course. So I thought about this, and and really it's something that a lot of women do. Mm. I didn't negotiate hard in my first few jobs. Did Goodman screw you on your salary? Absolutely not. That was when I finally started (laughs) to earn what I felt was a fair amount. All right, that's great. So why are we so bad at this? I don't know. It's maybe a lack of knowledge that you can negotiate or... You know, women only apply for a job when they check all the boxes. Men apply for the job when they think they can do it. There's just so many studies on women not advocating for themselves. And so that's one thing that I always want to put out there is always negotiate because that starting pay right when you get out of school is so important because that's the base that you're going to grow from. And so many women are starting out without pushing and their male counterparts are getting a little bit more because they're negotiating and then they're just behind forever because of it. Thank you so much for joining us. You're great. Thank you so much for having me. 
You're listening to Jill on Money. After our interview segment, we do talk to you and we have our listener question of the week. Today, we are talking to Robert. Robert is from New Jersey. Hello, Robert. What can we do for you? Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background about myself and then get to my question. 23 years old. Um, I've been lucky enough to live at home and uh, maintain a savings rate above 80%. And when, when I move out, I'd like to buy a place. Mm-hmm. But kind of traditional investment thought would be for a 23-year-old to buy and hold, um, um, you know, equities for the next 40 years and watch them grow on average 10% year over year. But um, I'm worried if I'm trying to invest in real estate in the next two to three years, if that's too risky of an asset class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, okay. So first things first, obviously when you need the money is a very important determination as to your asset allocation. So even if you wanted to take all the risk in the world, two to three, even five year money, you cannot be a hundred percent in stocks. That is clear. And uh, I guess the next question I have is, are you sure you want to buy something? Because you are young. And so I'm wondering, you know, well, what if you found a great job in San Francisco or what happens if you got a great offer in Austin, Texas? Are you sure you want to buy real estate? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I just don't like the idea of, of paying rent and essentially throwing away money. But um, I certainly would would chase a job opportunity if um, if it presented itself. Um I've I've kind of read that if your horizon is less than five years in terms of um, living in a set location, then it's probably more financially responsible to to rent. But I'm not committed to to buying. But mm-hmm. um, it's it's kind of been my my hope out of college. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look, it depends. If you are telling me, hey, you know what? My family's in New Jersey. I'm going to have uh, tons of opportunities in New York or between New York and Philly. I've got plenty of opportunities. Um, it's more likely than not that I'm actually going to stick around here. That's one thing. If you think you really are the kind of person who wants to leave all of your options open, I want you to try to shift away from I'm throwing money out the window and you want to move towards this idea. I'm buying opportunity. That's what you're doing. Now, that said, it doesn't mean that you have to have all of your money at risk either, because you can have the risky part of your investing, that long-term money, which is, uh, you have a retirement account through work? I do. Okay. And uh, I mean, if you have an IRA, uh, a 401k, a Roth IRA, sure, go ahead, be stock market investor. You're not getting 10% a year, by the way. The other money that is non-retirement money that may be where you want to pull back the risk and at least have the choice in the next couple of years about what to do with that. Because that to me makes sense. You could be with some of the money, be super safe that you say, okay, if I really had a great opportunity in two years, what should I be in? You should be in something boring. You know, you should be in like a longer term CD or a higher yielding money market or a short term govy or something like that. But the rest of the money, if you just sort of want to have some liquidity, maybe you are thinking of moving or maybe this would just be the beginning of a non-retirement portfolio, you don't have it to have it all in safe stuff. Whatever you think you might need for a home down payment that you'd really like to leave that as a possibility, yes, very boring. Everything else in that account, you could be a little bit more risky, not a lot. 
if you say, let's say that you were 100% or 80-20 or stocks, 20% in bonds or 90-10 in your retirement account, you could be 50-50 in your non-retirement account. But anything you think you're going to need within two years, real home down payment money, that has to be super safe. I just want you to really think long and hard about the buying versus renting because you're so young. And more importantly, when you have money that's already been taxed, to me, that's a lot of opportunity you're buying yourself. So whatever you decide, you know what, go buy my book and read the whole chapter on buy versus rent. Because I just, I think renting is a great thing. It's really not throwing money out the window. And if you come back to me after really thinking this through and say, no, 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 I'm going to buy, then I would say, whatever you think you need for a down payment, make sure that money is safe. Great. All right. Now, but, you touched on retirement retirement accounts. Do you think it's possible to contribute too much and lose that liquidity? Or do you think maxing out hmm. is just a smart, safe thing to do at this age? Well, look, I think that if you 100% are on board with the buying, I, I would rather you wait a little bit longer to buy and still max out your retirement account. I really would. Because I think that the, the power of compounding is unbelievable. I think to keep doing both would be great and not to shortchange the retirement because you're. I think you will look back and say, oh, I wish I could have put more money in my retirement and I was in too big a rush to put that money in a house fund. So I say wait a little longer to buy the house and still absolutely positively max out that retirement account. Great. Well, All right. For your insight. My pleasure. Thanks so much for calling. Good luck. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much to our guest, Blair Duquesnay, and our caller, Robert. Don't forget, we drop new episodes of Jill on Money every week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Sometimes we sneak in a little bonus. If you've got a financial question, please just give us a holler. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. That's Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer extraordinaire, and we're distributed by Cadence 13. See you next week. See you next week.